Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Harvinder Power. He's the CEO and founder of Motix. Harvinder, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. How are you doing, sir? Hey, James, thanks for having me. You're very welcome, mate. Why don't you tell us and the listeners a bit about you, a bit about what you do at Motix? Yeah, awesome. Uh, So a bit about myself. So qualified for medicine in 2020, so only a few years ago at the height of COVID, uh, which I'm sure we all remember for various reasons. And then, yeah, started practicing, uh, did my foundation years at F1 and F2 over in Oxford, um, and then after that, decided to jump full-time into a startup that I had from medical school days, which is called Motix. So fundamentally, we're in the physiotherapy space, so not quite just you know pure medical. We're basically now an end-to-end solution to improve physiotherapy adherence of patients, but also automate clinic administration, so saving about 90% of their admin time. Nice. Sounds cool, man. And as I gather, you guys are, well, picking up in terms of traction and progress and all that sort of stuff. Whereabouts are you at these days? Yeah, absolutely. So things have been a, a bit of an interesting journey for us. Like we've been around for a few years, but reinvented ourselves in the last 12 months, really, with, you know, the advent of ChatGPT and the new age of AI, should we say. So yeah, we have a whole host of new products that we've come out with. So we have a, a new platform for patients, which is Mosex Move. So you can download that on the App Store and check it out. Uh, and basically, it'll give you real-time guidance on how you're doing exercises and how you can improve. And we also have a, a Motix co-pilot, which is for physiotherapy clinics. Uh, it's actually kind of secret, but hey, I mean, let's just make it public today. Um, <laughs> exclusive. So co-pilot actually is for physiotherapy clinics. Like I say, you know, it is, it is a bit of an exclusive. So um, co-pilot essentially is a fully automated um, patient management system. So think about it like this. You know, if you do a consultation, you take 10 minutes to type up your notes. It's a bit of a faff. You don't want to type it up. Copilot automates it all, so it listens during your consultation, generates your notes, generates the referral letters, and then starts requesting scans and anything else it needs to do. So it basically takes away the admin burden, which is definitely a new thing in the physiotherapy space, at least. So that's why uh, that's our main field. Very exciting. Very exciting, sir. And very... um... Very current and very relevant. Obviously, there's companies like Tortoise, what Don Pimenta's doing. There's Microsoft and Nuance. There's mm. all of these things that all these companies popping up to do this co-pilot role. It makes complete sense, of course, that every clinician can benefit. I go to physio myself. I see the, the physio <laughs> finishing writing up the previous patient's notes and trying to run that into <laughs> still interviewing me in my in my session and then like frantically trying to write the notes at the end of my session, which I'm sure rolls into the next session. Makes complete sense that this is a solution that can be extended to and physiotherapists. Why on earth not? And just think about it. Like I'm sure we, you know, we've both practiced and we've both dealt with the problem, right? It's just writing notes sucks. Yeah. Like, and honestly, half the time, they're the only things that hold up when you then have to, you know, go through any processes like regulatory processes, legal processes. So if they're not good quality, then you've got a problem. Yep. And so while we hate them, they're a necessary evil. So if we can just, you know, take away the time, then great. Love it. Love it. Obviously, it's hot off the press. It's an exclusive. But if you're interested, then of course, <laughs> uh, head to Motix and check it out. And I might ask you a few bits on that at the end please do it's not even on the website yet so can't even see it you just have to send me an email 
God, that was an exclusive. Thanks, thanks, mate. Well, definitely, definitely happy to have broken that on Helltech Pigeon. Um, that's awesome. Jessica and Hugh are also with me this week, uh, and we are going to crack into some Helltech stories. So let's do it. Our first story this week, this is in BBC News, so hitting the mass media, uh, and I can see why, it's an exciting story. Parkinson's implant restores man's ability to walk, and there is a heck of a video here literally showing how someone with Parkinson's has an implant in their brain and has now got the ability to walk. It is just literally as impactful as it sounds. But Harvinda, you've had a, a read of this and you've actually done some neurosurgery stuff with brain implants as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, what do you think of this? Yeah, really interesting. So I'll caveat that. So <laughs> when I say neurosurgery experience, I was uh, a senior house officer. So I got experience in neurosurgery departments, uh, got to assist on a few operations, which was very thankful, amazing experience I had there. And yeah, we, we did some stuff with deep brain stimulation. So not into the spinal cord, but into the, into the deep brain. And for the Parkinson's ones, sometimes you do them awake. So in which case you actually just see the tremors wow. just stop. And it's honestly magical. Like you just, you just turn on the battery, you connect it all up and they just, you know, you modify it and suddenly the tremors are gone. And that's like a minor thing in the hands, but getting someone to walk again is a whole other, it's a whole league, you know, league above and just saying that, we can now modulate it to a level that people have, you know, stability again when they walk, which is quite amazing. And I think the next thing to think about is actually where does this go next? So we've done this in Parkinson's now, and actually this looks to be working really well. What else can we do? Can we apply it to people who've had strokes and other, you know, CNS disorders? Like, where's the limit? I completely agree. This is, yeah, it's incredible. It was published in Nature. Nature Medicine, the journal that I'm sure many people listening know. Um, it's a 63-year-old man, and literally, he can now walk for miles. He was housebound. He had several falls a day previously. He can now literally walk for miles. He said even going up steps or even trying to get into a lift just gave him so many extra problems. But now isn't shuffling, isn't freezing, all the things that we know associated with Parkinson's. Um, and it's, I don't know, man, like this, this is literally, as you say, like almost science fiction. For those people that haven't been in those operations, which is the majority of us, what actually happens there? So you said that it's done awake, right? Mm. So is it is this literally just an electrode that's put into the brain and turned on? Like how does this how does this actually happen? A lot of planning goes into that process. So people have to have a lot of work out to make sure they're suitable for this sort of operation in the first case. Then when you're even in the planning phase, it's a lot of imaging techniques. So you'll combine sort of you know different CT scans or MRI scans to get the right level of detail to know exactly where your target is because even a couple of millimeters difference is a huge difference on the therapeutic effects. Yeah. We saw this in a couple of cases where you move it around even very, very, very slightly and it makes a big difference. And then your first step is, is really electrode insertion and then checking if it's in the right place. And a lot of that is, you know, essentially a frame bolted onto the skull. You do a few drills, a few burr holes with some drills, create holes in the, the skull, get into the brain, uh, and then obviously put the electrodes deep into the brain itself check they're all in the right place, hook up the battery, and then, you know, wake them up and see how it goes. I mean, this is blowing my brain. 
um, as someone who <laughs> has not practiced medicine but has been around healthcare for a long time, how long does the battery last? And where does the battery live? Yeah, so there's that's part of the discussion with the patient as well. So there are different sizes of battery that you can put in. Um, so these pulse generators, right? Uh, normally they're put in um, under what we call the subclavian. So basically just under your shoulder, like just sort of under your um, your clavicle actually on the front and you create a little pocket for it. So you make a little cut, put it in, sew it all up and, and that's, you know, Bob's your uncle there. And they, they last normally a couple of years um, if you get to the larger batteries, but the smaller ones obviously don't last as long. So does that mean that you then have a wire coming down from your brain through to your clavicle? Exactly right. Yeah. So what we do is basically tunnel it. So we create uh, basically a small little tunnel using basically a long stick, essentially. That's the way I like to call it. Uh, and you basically just dig it underneath the skin between the, the skull and the scalp and you go down the neck. So it goes down normally the left hand side into this uh, into the pocket. It connects to the battery. Pretty. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see it um, yeah. in action. And yeah, before I before I started doing them, I was like, whoa okay didn't even know this was possible um but i mean you know the consultants the guys who are doing this operation very skilled so they know exactly what they're doing mm. um and it's a really fine art it's really amazing to see it wow and it so so it's completely autonomous so there's no input from the patient in terms of like pressing buttons or there's nothing that they have to do or is there so they they have like an app as well they can use right so this app can connect up to their, their battery and okay. so they can dial it up slightly as well so mm-hmm. when they come in for clinic reviews sometimes they'll they have like a modulation system so that's what they call it mm-hmm. and this modulation system will just get dialed up or down and so it basically increases or decreases the effect and these electrodes are, are really really smartly designed as well so there's not just you know one single electrode on this big thing, there's like 16 different points. And because they're all spaced out by about you know, a few millimeters, that can actually really change the effect as well. And so a lot of it is just playing around and seeing what the effect is of modifying, you know, which electrodes you're activating. Is it all 16? Is it, you know, four in this area and two in this area? So often in the clinic, after they have their surgery, the first few days, you know, is really about the follow-up and seeing what gives us the best effect, what gives us what we call the best coverage. Yeah, my, my mind is just blown here. This is like really intense, but incredible stuff all at the same time. I'm just, I wonder how, is it, so is this, is this case experimental or is this something that we, you know, is a first case where we're going to see it being rolled out perhaps? I haven't read the article myself, but I'm interested to see like, how do we make more people benefit? How, how can, how can everyone get access to this so it seems like this one, he was a, uh, so he had a brain implant that would have been hard to replace. And this, this new one um, was placed on the spinal cord, um, which, which sort of is the new interesting model. And it, it sounds like it, it's been quite invasive. In fact, Parkinson's UK research director voiced and said it's an invasive procedure, but could be game changing. I'm really keen mm. to sort of see how this could be scaled. Like, I wonder what the barriers to scaling this are because mm. they mentioned that others could benefit, but they've only done it in this one one man so far. So it's really, yeah. really early stage by the look of it. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, it says that um, funding from the Michael J. Fox Foundation uh, is going to support its use in six more Parkinson's patients. Um, Fun fact for uh, you all that uh, Michael J. Fox was actually my first childhood crush from uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> so I, I have I have a lot of time for him and his work, not least because he's doing amazing things. 
For me, this is a, a good example of health tech and the fact that ultimately humans are not only in the loop, but ultimately driving this. You mentioned Harvinder that this is a very skilled operation. The requirements of this are very skilled individuals with a very human quality of being able to have the dexterity in order to even place those electrodes to understand what's happening with each of those pins and how each of those are going to have an effect. But ultimately, Neuro Restore, the company that's obviously part of this device, and you're right, Hugh, this is a spinal device that basically sits in the lumbar spine in the epidural space by the looks of things and then augments signals from the brain down to the legs to basically clean up the signals to prevent the tremors. So a very, very, very sophisticated health tech device, but then put into the hands of very, very skilled and trained human beings to then do the operation, put it in, to then get the result for the patient. And yes, this does sound like an incredibly expensive thing to do. For that patient, it's obviously priceless. And actually, the Michael J. Fox Foundation that's part of this now is, as you say, then funding this for more people. It's obviously important to remember that these things, yes, we need to think about scalability. We need to think about you know cost and, and that type of thing. But we see this in things like CAR-T therapy as well, these incredibly expensive treatments that for whom are only afforded to the few for now. But by going through the process, we hope that by doing things like Ori Biotech are doing, by changing the manufacturing process of cell therapy, we can reduce that cost and we need to go through this. So whilst these might be concepts or similar to you know a concept car you know a car that's built specifically to look a certain way and behave a certain way and yes it's it's an unscalable thing to do it's the learning that you go through in doing those things that can then provide the value later down the line because ultimately uh, you know you look at any of the technologies available now and you show them 100 years ago of course they're ludicrously expensive but we know what happens to those those costs as they come down i think it's a really a really nice story i think it, you know there's a really nice nod to the patient here as well in this which i like this article for how it it, it did it gave a lot of time to talking about um Mark Gautier from Bordeaux in France, um, his bravery for being, you know, the first one to go through this because I can only imagine what his consent form said on it when you're trying to put an electrical stimulating device into the lumbar spine and the things that he would have had to be consented for. Like, my goodness, it is brave. Yeah, really enjoyed the article. I think it's a really nice article. For anybody who wants to find it, they can find that on BBC News. Yeah, really nice, uplifting story to begin with. Our next story today comes from Forbes, and the headline is Health Tech's role in self-care in the era of Google and AI. So I guess the subcontext here is what is Health Tech's role in self-care in the era of Google and AI? What are our individual roles in self-care? What what's what can we achieve individually now that we have AI and large language models and all these different things? Um, Harvind, you said in your introduction that obviously this is the world that you're entering uh, into with Motix and I imagine you've got to grips with quite quite a lot or had to get to grips with quite a lot of this relatively quickly. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, What's health tech's role in self-care? What's the individual's role in self-care? Where does AI and large language models come in? And 
form part of this story. What are your thoughts on what's going on at the minute? I think it's a constantly changing environment. Um, and by that, I mean every single week. It's The landscape looks very different to what it did last week. And I mean, for context, so a lot of these new models are getting created. Basically, every week mm. we're finding there's new models, new use cases, new optimizations, yeah. uh, new companies spinning up, you know. But what we what we haven't really seen yet is the regulation to really accompany all of this to sort of governance and and the policing of these models in the health tech space in particular. And so I think we were sort of discussing earlier, which is that the onus really at the moment is on the health tech companies to be sensible and to sort of follow existing regulation and try and adapt it and sort of say, okay, we're not going to publish anything right now that could be or could have the potential to cause harm. But at the moment, the the regulation hasn't been clearly defined, as far as I can understand, to say that you know this is allowed for these you know these chatbots, these conversational LLMs, and these things aren't allowed. And then what about things like generative AI? You know, where does that come into the mix? And I think it, you know the question comes with what are we able to generate in the healthcare space? Like what's allowed and what's not? So at the moment, it's I think it's a big question mark because everyone's got the role to play, but there's no conductor of the orchestra per se, which typically would be the government saying, this is how you need to operate to make this a safe environment. The speed at which OpenAI is changing things as well is frightening because I feel behind on it because I know there was the announcement last week that they're going to be releasing these like individual GPTs that people are then going to be able to essentially train their own GPT or, or, or style out their own GPT and then sell it on a marketplace. And then I can buy a GPT that's going to serve a specific function. And I've, I've seen some videos of like, oh, here's a great one for like doing your SEO on your website. And here's a great one for doing your personal trainer, this, that, and then here's a good one for this and here's a good one for that. I'm like, wow, like I've literally just not read about OpenAI for 12 hours and all of a sudden I'm like massively behind on like everything that's going on. Like I, and I feel, I feel this pressure to be on top of it all as well. And like trying to, trying to stay there. So that's just me. And I'm in tech, I'm in health tech. I'm reading about all this stuff in the media all the time because I'm in media and content and all this stuff. And that's how I feel, let alone anyone that's trying to get a grip over the whole lot from any systems view of things like regulation or things like, I don't know, any of that stuff that that, that sort of government and systems level that's trying to keep a lid on things or trying to govern it or trying to, I'm just trying to extract value from it, which is, you know, kind of like a nice to have almost that is becoming more and more essential, but let alone the people that are trying to actually make sure people don't come to harm or, or, or trying to navigate how these things affect big systems be them healthcare systems financial systems like lots of this stuff it is it is scary it is frightening i don't know what the answer is but i think it's also got a huge potential though at the same time because like we were saying things are changing so quickly like i've you know i've been in this space for a few years i have never seen a field move as fast as we are watching it explode in real time like we we are literally watching for example, we're watching videos on YouTube that were posted four days ago. They're already out of date. The only place really that I'm finding all of this information is is really up to date is on Twitter because all the researchers, all these you know CEOs of new startups, everyone's just on Twitter saying, "Here's the latest update. It's six hours old. It's already about to be <laughs> old news because the next update is coming in the next hour." So it's 
I think it's it's beautiful. It's amazing to see this pace of innovation. But at the same time, I think we need to we need to keep it really grounded in reality and say that in health tech especially, patient safety comes first. And as a doctor and a health tech founder, what are you seeing in terms of the other health tech founders that you know in your kind of community? Because it's interesting, actually, you're part of both. You're part of that kind of clinical community, but you're also part of like the health tech community and specifically, you know, the health tech founder, health tech CEO community as well. You mentioned obviously the reg. I mean, we swear all the time. It gets a bit dull saying it over and over again that like, yeah, regulators are going to struggle to keep up and blah blah blah. But what is what is going to keep us on track here? Like, what what is currently keeping bad actors out? What is currently keeping everything on the straight and narrow? Is it the health tech founders themselves? Is there some sort of community? Is community policing of it? Are founders like yourself identifying bad actors and telling them like what's actually happening like yeah what's actually happening so i think there's probably a few different small things at each level that are really keeping things at bay for the time being so thinking about model providers so let's say open ai is a good example even if you try and tell gpt to act in a nefarious manner it will always try and avoid it at the first the first instance right so it's baked in really really early at that level Obviously, there are open source models. Uh, I'm not going to name them, but some that will avoid that completely and will just tell you the unfiltered answer that you know some of them would love to give. Well, there was that thing. There was, there was, there was that thing that we talked about before, wasn't there? Actually, just sorry to jump in, but there was that. Just on that, I think this is important to say on this podcast. Do you want to explain what we talked about before? I about do, yeah. So we we met actually uh, the last time we met in person was actually at the Sifted Summit, which was a few weeks ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the people presenting on the day was the CEO of Mistral, uh, which is a new French uh, sort of AI startup, which raised a, a ludicrously large round, like ones that we haven't really seen of that size for seed round. Mistral just released their model, I think, the week before, I want to say, um, and. Uh, Sifted put out a really good article about it, um, highlighting what the model was about. However, also highlighted that there were certain risks, and one of those risks are that you can actually prompt it if corrected, if, you know, correctly prompt it to tell you how to create a bomb and give you the instructions. And so that's quite concerning that that's even possible, and that obviously is something that, because it's an open source model, can easily be done by any user. And the next level to that is because it's an open source model and you can run it on device, you have no real way of policing it because it's out there in the public. So I think there's a whole secondary question there of should we allow open source large language models that can achieve these end effects? And if yes, what can we do to prevent these sort of severe side effects like telling people how to make bombs, you know, spreading disinformation, running these sort of you know disinformation campaigns like we did with previous elections as well because you know thinking about it we're about to head into two big election cycles in the us and the uk how do we prevent this brand new technology that wasn't here the last cycle to now spread disinformation distrust in the government at this very critical juncture the future of two big countries i guess this draws quite interesting parallels to the rise of google right like rise of google and search engines uh i mean it's I, I vaguely recall that you know in early 2000s it was perfectly possible to ask google to direct you to a site that told you how to make a bomb but obviously you know they put restrictions on google has its own features that restrict access to kind of dangerous sites to challenging sites and there's that misinformation question 
uh, are we going to be looking at the same kind of activities that Google, I guess Yahoo, you know, all of the search engines took in those early years of the uh, early years of search? Are all of the Gen AI developers going to have to take the same sort of actions? You know, are those going to be sort of a sort of similar approach, or you know, what's next? But the problem is, who's who's responsible for that if it's open source? Because you kind of just put it out into the world, and then 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 whose is it? Who who will put that in place? This is the challenge, isn't it? And so, um, on the stage, I remember Mr. Or CEO saying that he believes that a lot of the responsibility lies to people who are making the software, right? Which I can understand. But at the same regard, I think there's there's a bit of nuance there where if you're creating this amazing foundational technology, which it is. And you're putting it out there in the public, but it enables anyone to use it. So good actors and bad actors. And I guess the question comes with who's responsible for preventing bad actor usage if you're creating this foundational technology. And I interrupted you when you were running through the different levels um, and because you, you talked about the, the model creators. But currently, who is policing that on those different levels? So, yeah, so model creators, so OpenAI, for example, and Claude from Anthropic, uh, so they're also very good at baking in sort of security standards at their level, right? So at the model level. So it will very much try to to really never sort of succumb to any prompts, injection attacks, or anything that could cause it to give us uh, sort of bad information, should we say. That being said, there are always ways of trying to get that information out of it. And people are very smart. And, you know, there are loads of examples out there, people figuring out how to get OpenAI to give out, for example, like serial codes for Windows 10 for, you know, and proprietary information from Samsung, for example, got leaked. So all these examples, it is possible. That's one line of defense. The second line of defense really is the software creators. So people are actually then creating the software you know, the experiences that are then used by the clinician or the patient at that next level. And so at their level, they're obviously designing custom prompts, fine-tuning the models, giving it specific information and specific functions to do. And so you've then got that second layer of security before you then get to the final user, which is the clinician or the patient. And so in their case, the clinicians are often quite good because, let's be real, a lot of us are very, very hard to convince that new technology is better in the first instance, right? We're very, we're very hesitant to adopt something new. That's just the way we are. It's the way we've sort of been instilled into. And in many ways, that's a good thing because it means that we're not willing to just take something at face value. We need to look into it and understand it and what the, the sort of the use cases are and what the fringe cases are, you know, what happens if you push it to the limits? I think at the patient level is where it gets a bit of a question mark because some patients are expert patients. They will completely understand the limitations of a brand new, untested AI software. Some patients are less of an expert, we say. And so in their case, these are the ones that we need to be focusing on protecting from these negative effects, these bad actors. So I think whilst there's protections at every level, we need to really shore these up so that we have a very firm position for all health tech companies going forward to say that we can safely operate large language models and other large-scale AI models in this space on a really practical level. How do you think that's done? How, how, like, because we can talk about like who we think is responsible, like our government and these people and this agency and this thing that we we can talk about it at a really high level. But like, really practically, because you're on the ground here, like, what do you think are the first things that are going to come in to actually solve this problem, or, or indeed, like, just generally, what do you think will actually happen here to solve this? 
So I think the first the first things first is people who are creating the software at our level, you know, so myself as, yeah. you know, CEO of Motex, we we should really be focusing on penetration testing all of our AI elements, right? So basically we focus on security as a big thing, yeah. is what we do. So one of the things, one of the big ways of sort of, you know, viruses were the big thing, you mm-hmm. know, in the 2000s of, you know, affecting software, breaking down a server, whatever. Nowadays, it's things like prompt injection attacks. Okay, so you inject it with a, a new prompt, which is completely different to how you train the model or told it to act, and it will now do something completely nefarious. Wow. And if you've given it access to your systems, it can then do something, you know, completely wild and wacky that you never thought of that could destroy your entire system, wow. right? Or could do something completely awful, like, you know, telling every patient they've got cancer when in most cases they haven't. Those are the things that really, really need to be rigorously tested. So, you know, one of the things that we focused on is making sure that our system is incredibly resilient. All of our prompts are top secret, so they're stored away. You can't even access them. Yeah. Um, so they can't be modified, can't be touched. But even then, there are still ways to break most systems. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly in this battle of learning where these insecurities are on a weekly basis and updating our system to make sure they can't be you know, susceptible to these. That is fascinating. And such a, 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 like a modern cybersecurity, what a modern cybersecurity attack might look like to a company like yours, you know? And then in order for like, rep, you know, if a competitor wants, if a dodgy competitor wants reputational harm, that's how they might go after you. It's something that I'd not even considered. Like, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. what an outrageous thing to do for like everyone involved to to do an attack like that. But it's interesting that that's what you went to straight away is like, yeah, we've thought about this. Like that might be something that someone might try to do and actually we have to protect against it. And goodness knows what your top 10 of those things are. I mean, that must just be a, a list that you never want to have to look down more than once. Like, my gosh, it's awful. Absolutely. And that's why one of the things we really like to focus on doing is actually not just using Genitive AI as like the single agent to do literally every single task, but used in very certain, very targeted ways to do one task amazingly well and really, really well at that task, but then have different agents running different tasks. So for example, in our case with Copilot, we have one t- one agent that runs our summarization engine and his only task is to take in transcription data and create the best possible notes mm. and the best possible summary from that. But it doesn't affect any any of the other systems like our, you know, our booking systems and everything yeah. else that we're now working on because otherwise it would just be one AI controlling everything. And if you affect one system, mm. you've infected the entire platform. So this sort of modularization is is where things are going. Are you self-taught on all of this? Because I'm interested now, like the 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 level that you're going into is sort of, I'd expect this from your CTO rather than the CEO, but you are very well versed in this from a technology perspective. So how did you get here from clinical medicine to now, this, we've talked about the speed that you have to learn this stuff, right? Like, how have you amassed this knowledge? Um, probably through just being in the space, I would say, uh, and keeping up to date. I mean, I think you know the story, actually, which is that I never really wanted to be a doctor, actually, which is my sort of deep, dark secret. Um, I, I always wanted to be an engineer before I even went to medical school. But for, for many reasons, you know, found the upbringing, everything else, I then went through medicine instead, uh, but then still managed to leave and become an engineer at <laughs> the end of it. So um, I've always enjoyed the engineering parts of things. It's always been 
a big fascination of mine. So that's why even now I still love to just jump in and do some bits on the code on our mm. sort of code base, just where I can to to keep it up to date. And a lot of this information is is being shared in real time as well. So like you're saying, being part of a community, the beauty is that we can speak with other founders who are having the same problems in real time because a huge number of companies are incorporating Gen AI into their products now. So for us and them, we're all just discussing, okay, how do we prevent this attack? How do we stop this? Yeah. Okay, somebody mentioned this new exploit on Twitter. How do we how do we protect against that? Yeah. So really keeping up to date is is more important than ever when things are moving this fast, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And also having that community really helps to foster that sense of, yeah. of moving forwards together. I think that's the really nice thing about healthcare as well, actually, that at the end of the day, healthcare is not a zero-sum game. There's not like ultimately one winner of healthcare innovation in the same way of like certain areas of different sectors there might be like there might be a lot a lot more competition and actually that's what i do enjoy about healthcare is that ultimately these networks do exist and the shared learning can exist and actually of course you'll have competitors in in what you do um but it won't be necessarily as vicious as as in other places um because we're all ultimately trying to make healthcare better and i think that's that's uh it's a nicer environment to be part of that's good to hear man like it's really it's super interesting yeah i really think it's super interesting time to be in a health tech founder as well it's just like we're, we're witnessing basically a brand new technology being created in front of our eyes which has humongous potential to help patients and clinicians all at the same time All right, our final story today, a bit of a, a bit of a feel-good story, this, uh, which has a few different meanings. But um, HTC is sending a VR headset to the International Space Station to support astronaut mental health. The reason that we are smirking and the reason that we are sort of laughing our way through this a little bit is that this is a very serious story about astronaut mental health, but we have just had a few ideas thrown about as to why. Uh, Harvinder, do you want to explain what, what, what one of them was, or should we just leave that to the audience's imagination as to what might have been said? I mean, there's a huge number of use cases, right? Like, I think we could, I'm sure, list off at least 10. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. I'll leave it to your audience's imagination as to what Harvinder said one of those use cases might be. <laughs> um, but Hugh, you've had a read of this story. Um, yeah, what's going on here? Yeah, since since this Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, November 7th, uh, Danish astronaut Andreas Mogensen has had access to a VR headset sent to him specially by uh, the team at Taiwanese uh, telecoms manufacturer, uh, HTC. Um, so it's part of an initiative to get uh, to improve astronaut mental health. There's obvious reasons here. Astronauts spend a lot of time in space. They get limited contact with their friends and family. They... Uh, probably stuck in a tin can with maybe one or two other humans um, for endless time eating and drinking what you know, we've all seen it doesn't look very, like very nice things so you can imagine how their mental health would be strained by that experience and so yes this uh, VR is essentially being I, I guess it, I guess you could call it personalized in its own way because it's out there um, to give Andreas a sense of mm. The things that he would do normally, uh, so that it's less of ju- less jarring when he returns to mm. Earth and he goes from tin can limited space, uh, limited contact to all of the things that we take for granted and that we take, um, for example. I think there is a, there's a nice little rundown of just what he's going to have access to on his virtual reality. It's not the thing that uh, 
our audiences are imagining, thanks to some prompts from Harvinder and Jane. Get your minds out of the gutter. Exactly, exactly. But no, Andreas is going to have access to uh, VR uh, environments such as a sunset atop a picturesque hill, a mountain path in Europe, swimming with dolphins, um, <laughs> because that is what we all normally do when we return to it. Oh, no, <laughs> uh, a tour of the western coast of Denmark, uh, and a nature hike through the wetlands. Um, Oddly specific, I, I'm yeah. I'm <laughs> going to call that personalised VR mental health care because it does seem very tailored to a Danish astronaut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what he asked for, you know? Maybe that was on his list. Maybe. How, how is that going to accustom him to life back on Earth? I mean, surely they should have, you know, walking to Aldi and buying groceries as like the two main experiences. Mm. Re- receiving a really difficult email, like all these, ty- all these types of things, yeah. Yeah, joining a Zoom call at 9am. <laughs> avoiding that awkward person on the street corner in Copenhagen. Yeah, we're trying to help his mental health though in, the, in this in this instance, but I can definitely I can definitely see how it works. Like, yes, why not give the people an absolute break? And I, I think this is the this is the same thing that that I think is related to VR and like simulation training and things like that. It's like the fidelity of it. And I think as as these headsets are getting better, as they're getting cheaper, as they are slightly edging towards the the mass market with what Apple's doing and all the rest of it. This super high fidelity environment that you can put people in. I do just wonder like how much that will help us. And that is in part as scary as it is kind of optimistic because then it always creeps in for me. It's like, well, well, if that lovely environment is where I want to spend my time. That's where I get my mental health, rest and relaxation. How much time will I want to spend in that environment going forwards? That doesn't take away, though, the fact that for uh, this sort of mental health relief from the environment that they're in, it's clearly doing a good job. And I think as we go forwards in health tech, these use cases will continue to come up they'll continue to add value you've seen it in pain relief we've seen it in surgical planning with hollow care you know everyone in the mdt sticks a hollow lens on and is able to rotate a 3d liver in space and you know visualize the resection and where all the major vessels are and where all the major structures are to get around it and that can be planned and there's some awesome stuff going on in vr it's very 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 cool and so yeah looking forward to see looking forward to hearing if uh if this is mentioned actually in terms of like how good it was on the international space station it makes complete sense and just my final thought on this actually is if this is the case right and it helps someone on the international space station completely transport from where they are into somewhere better at least temporarily to give them the relief until they're back until they're back in the real world right i've always thought and wondered and considered since my time on intensive care like how important would this be for someone that's you know, got a trackie that is bed bound, that is awake, that can't communicate as effectively as they used to with with people and just wants relief from the environment that they're in. Like I do wonder what like what the what the positive benefits on this in intensive care might be. And I think studies have been done on that that type of thing. But yeah, I I um I always wonder that from from based on my clinical days. Yeah, I'm just waiting to see when Ready Player One becomes a reality. Yeah when we're all just so in a dystopian future living in virtual reality and then uh, working our way up a leaderboard. I think it's, it sounds like it's coming. You can see where it ends though. You can see that it ends there. Like I, when you, whenever I sort of play this out, it always does just end there. And 
sometimes it's like, well, are there going to be people that it's red pill, blue pill? Are there, are there, are there going to be people that want to take, want to live in the VR world and just plug in and, and just get, you know, fed through an IV and just exist in that world? Are there going to be people that want to just exist in the real world? Um, these are the big questions that are answered on Health Tech Pigeon. Uh, so Harvinder, yeah, give us that answer for me. Just <laughs> I was just saying my answer would be living in the real world. I mean, it can't, it can't really compare, can it? Like the virtual reality is just a, you know, a snapshot of true reality. But if things change in true reality, can you really reflect them in virtual reality? I don't know. We're not there just yet. But right now, I prefer the real world, just saying. I'm, uh, I'm not really just just ready for the metaverse just yet. We're going to have to get Andreas on the podcast at the end when he's back and ask him whether now that when he's back in the real world, when he's back on on uh, on you know Earth, whether he's just desperate to get back in. That is a good shout, Hugh. Let's do that. Let's reach out to him and his team. Let's get him on the Pigeon podcast and let's talk about some health tech in space. That'll be a nice title, won't it? What would your what would your view, James? What would it be? Would you red pill or blue pill? The real world, obviously, the real world. I, mm. I think there's a certain amount of uh, privilege baked into that. That I don't have any mental health disorders. I, I exist in the real world where I am, kind of the master of my own destiny. And you know, I'm in a situation where I can, you know, architect my life in a way that I feel like I've got agency and all the rest of it. So I think the the element of suffering that comes along with just being human and existing in the real world is is accepted at this point. <laughs> that like the VR world would for me always be a sense of escapism. It would always feel temporary. It would always feel like something I'd want to holiday in and come back from. In the same way that even if I do literally go on holiday, mm. I'm looking forward to coming back to some of the struggle and some of the challenges and some of the things that are associated with that real life. So however much of that would I get? I mean, perhaps in VR, you could actually optimize the street. Perhaps you could get the perfect amount of struggle, the perfect amount of ups and downs to achieve satisfaction and to achieve you know all those different things. Maybe that is like a weird answer on all these things um i don't know but for me at the minute that's where i'd sit on that i mean all i've taken from that really is that your new title should be master of his own destiny <laughs> i feel like i was very inspired there <laughs> gotta remind myself about that sometimes like work does feel like it's done to you most of the time <laughs> rather than you being in any control of it whatsoever <laughs> um yeah what do you think about some of the some of the research? I remember saying a while ago that there's a lot of evidence saying we're already in a simulation. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Every time I see and read about and refresh my memory on the double slit experiment, it always I it always refreshes my um, thoughts and opinions that there's actually some evidence here that could contribute to a clear theory that we exist in a simulation. The fact that Light will behave a certain way whether it is watched by a sensor versus not. It behaves like a particle in one in one instance. As soon as you turn the thing on, it behaves like a wave. Like th this, that for me is crazy. Now I know that there's theory there on like how quantum plays in and how like really it's both really it's existing in all of these different ways. It's just that when you do this, it just appears in what like who who knows but um yeah 
that that for me is like evidence that okay is that simulation who knows but <laughs> yeah it's crazy isn't it i wonder i wonder how people would behave differently if it if it became true that we were living in a simulation would people act differently or people be happy to continue living in this in this sort of simulated vr world that we were actually in yeah and i don't know the answer to that but i guess what i do know is that i've seen it with ai in large language models at the minute that the more that we learn about the technology, the more questions that we have about our reality. Because in a world where you can talk to a large language model as if it's a human, it makes you ask and answer the question, well, what is it to be human? Because there's things like, you know, will it pass the Turing test? Of course it will. And so actually, well, it's not those things. Being human is something different. Or what is being human? What is the what is the possession of a consciousness? What is what is the interaction with us in this thing? Like it, it forces you to ask these questions, which I think is really interesting. And it will be the same of VR. I think that the more that VR comes mass market, the more people that are existing and living in VR headsets, the longer that we go on existing in a VR world, or, or just the more hours that human beings are in VR, because I think it's really small right now that people actually use you know, high fidelity VR headsets. I do think though that the more people that put VR headsets on, we will end up asking and answering these questions, which for someone like me, who's like been in health tech for so long, but actually, and yes, I have obviously an appreciation and a love for the practicality of the engineering. I actually really enjoy the philosophy of it. I enjoy, I enjoy thinking about those mm. things too. And I, I've actually got a podcast booked in with Dom Pimenta from Tortoise. He's already come on the Health Tech podcast once, but I'm actually bringing him back on to, to literally ask him questions like, for someone like him, who is deeply, deeply intelligent and very eloquent and has such an eye for, for detail and being in the detail, asking him questions like, what has working on AI taught you about being human? And I want to, I'm interested in his answers on those things. I'm interested in, you know, does he ever feel like he's creating any sentience and what does that mean? And what does that mean for us in health tech? Because we see it even with like, even when like digital therapeutics were coming about, right? With, I've seen it with, when digital therapeutics were starting to come through and people were talking about these digital therapeutics like diagnosing you now let's put mdr regulations aside for a second and use that word but digital therapeutics that were diagnosing but then delivering information to a person that was the obvious thing to do it's scalable it's tech it's you put your you self-register your mm. symptoms and a diagnosis pops up it then became a thing to consider well hold on we can do it but should we do it should technology be driving that information from machine to human? Well, no, that's not what healthcare is. It forced us to think about what healthcare is. Healthcare getting the answer, or is healthcare actually receiving the answer in a certain way from a human being and feeling cared for? Well, it's more that for me anyway. I think anything that's just going to fire a diagnosis at you without the ability to then coach you on it or allow you to feel cared for, there's something fundamentally human about that moment of delivering a diagnosis. That only comes about because 
you've had a digital therapy to try and do it. And then we've had to ask and answer questions on it. Now you can layer in the fact that, well, a large language model can do it. And actually there's studies that show that people find large language models incredibly empathetic and trusting. And actually it's a fantastic way to deliver information. And again, that makes us think about it in even more detail and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I find this stuff fascinating. I do think that the more that people are in VR beyond international space station astronauts, the more people on earth that are in VR, I think the more of these questions will come up. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I think your, your point actually about what does it mean to be human is such an interesting point now because we're really at the tipping point of where AI currently is and where it will be in a few years time to say we have, you know, we have AI at this current juncture that can basically sound like it's a human through any sort of messaging platform, let's say, unless you knew otherwise, as you say, pass the Turing test and say, you know, it would very convincingly tell you exactly what you'd want to know. The question is, what's next? You know, we're, we're clearly on a path to AGI mm. and the timelines of that, everyone's saying within 10 to 20 years and, and it's accelerating. It looks like it's getting even faster every single year, every new update to to the field, which I was saying is, is at breakneck speed, we're just getting closer and closer and closer to AGI. But what does that mean? Like, I guess the, the fundamental questions to ask is, what does that enable? What does it achieve for us? And I think we have to look beyond health tech now. We have to look at the world as a whole and see, what does it truly deliver? Like, if we've got this truly sentient artificial intelligence, can it deliver us unlimited clean energy? Can it create, you know, all these new systems that enable us to essentially survive forever, both as a species and individually? And then more philosophical questions. Do we need that? Mm. Is it human to have mortality and to understand that life is futile and eventually will go? I think, you know, the the whole AI thing has really exposed, you know, a lot of philosophical debates to be to be sort of gone through and discussed mm. to say what what does it mean to be human mm. you know what what is our purpose mm. in life because as we're seeing a lot of people's purposes a lot of people's jobs in many ways are also being taken away by artificial intelligence because quite simply they're so automatic that they can be done in in seconds rather than in days or or weeks mm. and the whole just because we can should we is the other thing this kind of infinite growth of mm. technology inf infinite kind of forward momentum of technology to a place just because we can should we and we've heard many of an elon musk quote about putting the brakes on with ai and the existential threat that it poses and all these things well speaking of elon musk what do you think about grok the new um, the new model by xai what is that i don't know what that is Ah, okay. So, so this is a new update for you. So, last uh, in the last few days, uh, XAI, which is um, mm. X's yeah. AI division, has actually released a new model, which they call Grok. And the whole point of it was that Elon's basically focused on training this large language model to be the most truth-seeking AI out there. So that's his his focus around seeking the truth. Um, so it's modeled around the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Do you remember the AI in that movie? Ah, uh, yes. I have seen something on this, yes. Yeah. So um, it, it looks pretty pretty amusing, quite fun. Um, whether it's truly truth-seeking, I think, will be to, be to be discovered. But I think the question there comes with, if we, if we truly get to artificial general intelligence, two questions. One, how do we ever control that? 
And then two, what would its prime directive ever be? What do we tell it? What's its true sort of single purpose in life? Because open AI's whole AI is around being helpful, whilst being friendly, but also not you know not causing any harm. Mm. What would we you know? Let's say it was you. What would, what would you do? I'm curious. I don't know. The thing that the thing that frightens me on that with with truth is, <laughs> can we handle the truth? Do you remember ages ago when basically it was something to do with Microsoft, but something that was built just start that was trained on data that was just there in existence of human beings. Whatever it was, just started to be racist. Do you remember this? Was it like early chatbot type stuff? Yeah, it was Microsoft's Miranda. Th- that was it? Yeah, it was learning from inputs from users. So it was learning and understanding and formulating it like it started as a blank slate. And it was learning from the inputs that y- the users it was interacting with were providing. And of course, humanity is horrible. Yeah. So the first thing anyone did was tell it racist and sexist, misogynistic um ultra um extremist views and it started parroting them back because that's how it had learned it's crazy isn't it so this is the stuff that frightens me of like what what is what is truth is that truth is that that's individual that's an individual person's truth is that truth at, at large well no that's not how we would define it but if if we've got now you know agi going in search in search of truth and uh, where those things collide, uh, it it, frighten, it frightens me because as Hugh has quite rightly pointed out, humanity is awful. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I laugh because I'm nervous mm. and I'm scared a little bit. In all honesty, like, I, I, and I don't know these answers, and I find it fascinating. I'm looking forward to actually going on a bit of a journey to find this stuff out by talking to people because I do like that side of my job here that i can i can be a bit investigative and speak to some people that are experts in stuff to figure this stuff out um but yeah it's that's more the stuff where my mind goes in terms of agi and and uh, an ai that's purely focused on truth because they're all reflective somewhat of their creator uh we all are and so however you want to define that we all are and Yes, I can appreciate someone that wants to not blur the lines of, you know, right and left wing, and by everybody get to truth by everybody talking about stuff. I get that in principle. There's just a lot of societal and cultural structures that have popped up to just curb things at the edges that have done quite nicely in getting us to this point. And I worry that opening floodgates might have unintended consequences. I think there's, there's again, there's a lot of stuff in there. Like, for example, what, what is truth and what does it mean to, to be true? Because we can look back at history and say people thought the world was flat for the longest mm. time. doesn't mean it's true. It's just what people thought. And they masquerade opinions as facts, mm. which, you know, nowadays I think is rife everywhere. And everyone's saying that, you know, I think it, therefore it's true. No, that's not true. That's your opinion. It may have an element of truth in it. Whether it's fully true is is not just because you have the opinion. Mm. And I think that, you know, a truth-seeking AGI, I'd be curious to see what does it do? Like, do, how does it define its own truth? You know, does it define it by 
a population level and say that because people believe it, it is true or actually says that no, it needs to go much deeper and understand things at a level that we haven't previously understood. I think that side might be quite interesting to say that actually we can understand the world in a way we never have before because we've never thought about understanding it in these through this lens. Mm. Yeah, mate, listen, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a heck of a topic, this. Um, I, we're in no way close to even getting mm. to anywhere near any answers, but I do find this awesome to chat to, so I am going to pick this up with mm. you and do this on a different episode. But, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Yep. Um, in terms of Motix, if people want to learn more about you and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about Motix, you can check out our socials, uh, check out our website. Or easiest way to keep up to date is to just drop me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or any of the ways that I'm on socials. Uh, because we're moving at such a breakneck speed that even we can't keep up to date with letting everyone know what's happening. Exactly. Um, Harvind, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, Hugh.